So before we jump into prayer, I need to show hands on this question. How many of you have a life hack? How many of you have a life hack in your life? Do you even know what a life hack is? Okay, gosh, that was a pitiful response from you all, okay? Let's start over. Let's just act like the video ended, okay, right? Okay, here we go. Do any of you have a life hack in your life? Yeah, that's great, right? A life hack is this, if you don't know what a life hack is, right? Life hack is doing something different, but it ends up being better, Right? Have you ever seen someone like open a, a jar before and they do it in a weird way, but it like ends up being way easier and you're like, how did you even come up with that? That's a life hack, right? It's something that you didn't know before. It's different, but it ends up being better. And I learned a life hack when I was living in Wadsworth. When I was at the Norton campus, me and my wife lived in Wadsworth and we lived in town near downtown and we lived next to an older guy who's about 85 or 86 years old. So he's been around the block once or twice. And I loved getting to know him and all of his life hacks, right? You walk through the house and you're like, this guy knows a thing or two. But at our house in Wadsworth, what you need to know is that we collected everybody else's leaves during the fall, okay? We were that house, right? That house that no matter how much you mulched and how much you mowed and how much you did whatever, the leaves were just endlessly in the gutters and on the yard, and I was constantly cleaning up leaves, maybe three or four times a fall, right, just to get it out of the gutter. And there was just constant times I'm like, I wish there was a better way because I'd get my old ladder, I'd get it up, I would start on one part of the gutter, and I would just work my way around, just scooping and scooping. And when you scoop, it's not just leaves. It's like weird stuff, right? You just get the muck at the bottom. You're like, what? How does this even happen, right? And so I was doing that one day, and all of a sudden, Jim, my neighbor, he walks out as I am finishing the gutter job. And I'm on the ladder scooping up the muck, right? And I'm like, what am I doing with my life right now, you know? And he looks at me, he says, Joel. You want to know how I do my gutters? I'm like, why don't you tell me, Jim? I'm almost done, right? And he gets out of his garage a leaf blower that has some sort of extension on it that has kind of this side thing. And he's like, here, let me show you. And he finishes the last like six inches of my gutter, right? And he had a life hack to cleaning his gutters. And all of a sudden, I thought to myself, well, that's different, right? He's kind of finagling with the thing. He's doing the thing. But he didn't get on a ladder. He didn't touch the muck. He didn't have to do any of that. That is some life hack there, isn't it? As we look at Luke 11, what we're going to find is Jesus has his own sort of life hack. What we find is Jesus is spending a lot of time with his disciples. He's been traveling around. He's been doing life with them. And they start to see something different in Jesus, something that they want to lean into more, something that they want to see more because they notice it's different, but there's something so good about it. What we're going to find is this, is the life hack per se, that the disciples are kind of leaning into and asking Jesus about, is how Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed differently, and his disciples took notes of that. We're going to be in Luke 11 throughout this series looking at a very famous passage in Scripture that we don't just find in Luke 11, but also in the Gospel of Matthew. And in this series, we are going to look and say, what does it mean to follow the steps of Jesus in prayer? What does it look like for Jesus to teach us to pray and to start 
living out of the vision of prayer that Jesus gives in Luke 11. Now, if you've been tracking with us this year, you know we've been in and out of Luke. And so this is kind of the next phase of Luke that we're going to jump into. And it's going to be just a short passage, but a very powerful passage. Let's look at it, and then we'll start diving into today's very introductory conversation about it. Luke 11 starts like this in verse, oh, sorry, is there a verse 2 and 4? Do we have that? I'll just read it. Here, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to read it. If you turn to verse 2 and 4, this is what Jesus says. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. That is the passage we're going to look at over the course of the next four weeks. And we're going to jump around to passages outside of that because I want to lean into three different prayers that I think Jesus initiates inside of our life and we see inside of his life. The prayer of search me, the prayer of break me, and the prayer of send me. And what we are going to find is those prayers may be some of the hardest prayers that you and I jump into. Search me, break me, Send me, and we're going to see how Jesus initiates those prayers. Now, my invitation, as I always do, is to not just sit on a Sunday and view me speaking about prayer, but to engage with it. And I'm going to challenge you at the end of the service very specifically, very simple way to start that this week. But there's a number of ways that I would invite you to jump into prayer. First is this. We have a number of resources on our back wall that you can connect with. First is the series guide that we provide for every series. Teach us how to pray series guide. Check it out. This one is going to be very, very interactive for you. And so I'd invite you to grab one in the back. Also on the back wall are two different books Two different books that I would suggest you go and buy on Amazon. Don't take those. Those are mine. I'll hunt you down, and I will retrieve them. But take a picture of them. Take note of the title. One is Dangerous Prayer. One is Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. And I would invite you to check those out. They're great resources. It's not the end-all, be-all, but they are great resources to jump into. The second thing I'd invite you to after you check out resources is we have a prayer group that meets at 9 o'clock in the morning on Sundays before the service. What you're going to see at the end of my service is I'm going to very intentionally push you to praying with others, but that's a great way to start praying with people here in community that you may know or may get to know and praying for personally what's going on and what's happening around our community campus. Nine o'clock, the back building here on Sunday mornings. Then the last thing, Paige already mentioned this, come to the prayer and worship night. It's going to be a blast. We're going to have a ton of fun, but we're also going to be praying over our campus and community that night as we jump in the two services, as we think about the 16,000, as we think about all that's going on around the building. We want to offer it up to God and allow him to do his thing with it, okay? So that's happening at the end of the month. Three things, resources, prayer group, prayer, and worship nights. I want to see you all there, and we're going to have a blast together. But let's jump in to Luke 11, because I think it's interesting, right? I think it's interesting. Jesus's disciples, inside of this passage, what we're going to see is this. They asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, which I find fascinating, right? Because they've been with Jesus for a hot minute now. The crowds have seen Jesus. Jesus has been performing some pretty awesome miracles. 
He's been slaying demons, right? He's been doing some pretty gnarly teachings. He's been having some pretty intense conversations, right? And I wonder to myself, why in the world would the disciples want to learn about prayer when all of this other stuff is happening? People are being healed. The 5,000 are being fed. Demons are coming out of people. What is it about prayer? What is it about Jesus' prayer that in the scripture, Luke notes the disciples ask, teach us this. Teach us this. Show us this. Sit with us in this. We've noticed this. It shocks me because prayer, if we were to be honest, for some of us, maybe for all of us, if we were to really dig deep, can seem very small or seemingly insignificant, maybe even simple. Like, of course, we transition services with prayer. We do prayer before meals. Why would the disciples want to learn about prayer? What, what is it that Jesus is doing here? But I think what's interesting is they noticed it, not just in function, but in rhythm of Jesus' life. Let's take a look at verse 1. Thanks, Ella. You're doing great. That's awesome. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. Here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. The rhythm, the rhythm of Jesus' life was noticeable. The rhythm of his life was noticeable. He had been praying in a certain place. And praying in a certain place, in such a place that he probably had, it was probably something that was rhythmed into his life, a schedule of sorts that he was there with the Father. And I don't think it's just as much that Jesus knew how to pray and the disciples didn't, but Jesus was consistently, constantly praying and the disciples noticed it. There's a number of passages where, where they're like, where's Jesus at? Or Jesus comes back to them after prayer. He had a rhythm of it, and it was different. And they took notes of that. And as the disciples watched, they started to become interested. They started to become interested because prayer in a first century Jew's life was significant. They memorized scripture. They memorized prayer. They memorized things. And prayer was significant in their life because there was a teacher and there was disciples. And they would have had a rhythm of their own prayer. And what we notice is this, is that the teachers of the day and their disciples even had their own sorts of prayers. That each teacher would have taught maybe a little bit differently or a little bit here, a little bit there. We see going on in verse 1, we see this. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. We see that there was a rhythm not just of prayer in Jesus' life, but prayer was a conversation all around Prayer was a conversation for even John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, and his disciples. And they would have been taught, as John prayed, how to pray, in a sense. And so what we see is, in the first century Jew life, they would have noted that their teacher was praying, yes. But how was he praying? Teach us to pray just like John taught his disciples. We want to be in tune with what you're doing and how you're doing it and how you're playing it out. 
And what's interesting is this, is I think we read this, right? Lord, teach us to pray. And maybe for some of us, we know the background, we know the context, and we're like, it's understandable for a first century Jew to want to learn how to pray. They were indoctrinated into it. They were learning it. They were processing it. They, they knew it from a young age. Of course, they'd want to learn how to pray. But what does it mean for us today? And I think maybe just as much first century Jew, a 21st century American is asking the same question. We just don't vocalize it as much. Barna did a research on prayer in our country and around the world. This is what they found in 2017, and they've done a number of researches. 80% of people say they have prayed in the last three months. 80% of people in our country have said they prayed in the last three months, and those numbers haven't varied much in the last several years, which means the majority of our country, even though maybe the majority does not identify as Christians, are still engaging in some form of prayer or conversation with the divine, right? And I think that that clues me into something, that we are still asking about it, even if it's not verbally asking a teacher. I think there's something inside of us that wants to have a conversation with the divine, with someone who's beyond ourselves, and even though we live in a, t a day of technological advancements and we know a lot and we have a lot, I think people are running into that desire that's found outside of us, not just inside of us. And here's what's interesting. As we talk about this and as we engage with this, I'd invite you to consider what it looks like for you personally. What it looks like for you to navigate this on your own and then bringing that into community. Because what's interesting is the disciples, I think they were asking, teach us to pray. Yes, teach them to pray in what form, in what manner. But I also think there is something interesting about Jesus' prayer that I think is a connecting piece between first century and 21st century. What we're going to look at today is very simple, basic. We're starting at foundational levels of prayer but Jesus Jesus prayed with an intentionality he prayed with a familiarity and there was a relational structure an intimacy that Jesus prayed with here's the reality we live arguably research has said in one of the loneliest eras of all time even though we're most connected, right? And I think sometimes prayer is a desperate cry for someone to hear me. And so it may not be for some people this religious tradition that I grew up in and I believe about and I understand, but there is something innately deep down, a desire to connect with someone outside of myself that cares, that loves, that was, will be willing to lead me inside of life. And I think more than ever, the conversation of prayer is one not just that in the church 
we're navigating, but even maybe those who are lost and are trying to figure out life are in some way navigating. I think there was a research poll that said six out of ten atheists even said they've prayed at one point or another, right? All of us at some level want to dig into something outside of us because of hope, because of meaning, because of purpose. Because here's the reality. I think what Jesus is going to show us inside of prayer is revolutionary and hard. Because prayer often is something we look at and maybe believe lies about. Let's start there. Before we get to what Jesus says about prayer, what do I tend to believe about prayer and just allow it to be the thing that I believe? There's three things I think I noted that are kind of overarching. There's probably 60 different things in all sorts of different ways. There's three things I think prayer can become that deceive us or create lies in us about prayer. First, prayer becomes ritualistic. Sorry, ritualistic. Prayer becomes ritualistic, and I'm not saying in rhythm, but more in a checklist or monotonous. Becomes something that I just do because I'm a part of a church, or I'm a Christian, or I identify as this, and and I am following this, and I'm doing this, and I'm getting this, so I got to do it. And here's the reality, right? That's not always bad. It's good to have rhythms. We'll talk about that. It's good to maybe even have a ritual of doing it. But if that's all that it becomes is checking off the list and going through the routine, it falls flat. And here's the reality. Even as your pastor, it's very easy to get into a rhythm of prayer that is monotonous, checklisty, and I've got to do it. Prayer for me has brought guilt and shame and fear and exhaustion. Prayer for me has been something that I wrestle with and I ask God about. I'm like, what do I do with this? Prayer for me has not always been a simple and still is not a simple process or rhythm. So many times I found myself in this box where it's just checklist after checklist and I got to cross my T's and dot my I's and do all the things with it. And maybe for some of us, that's where it's at. Like, we do it before bed, we do it in the morning, we do it before we eat. Check, check, check. And that's where we leave it. Maybe for others of us, prayer becomes about right and wrong. Right and wrong. For some of us, right, and I've been in this boat before, we're, we're, we're nervous to pray because we're not sure we're going to say the right things. Or we're not sure what to say. We're not sure how to engage it. And so it becomes, am I doing the right thing or is it the wrong thing? I don't want to pray out loud because I'm fearful what others are going to say or what is going to happen here. And we base it, and ultimately it gets based in guilt or shame. I'm not as prepared as they are. I'm not as gifted as they are. I'm not as as well, well articulate as they are. And all of a sudden prayer becomes about the right way and the wrong way of doing it, and we miss the point inside of it. And I've been there. Have you ever sat in a setting where you're going around, like it's, it's prayer time, popcorn prayer, right? Student ministry, popcorn prayer. And then the first person prays and you're like, that was like a speech that was planned out for months, right? I couldn't do that even if I wrote it out. You're like, what do I, how do I do this, right? 
You're like, praise the Lord, it's popcorn prayer, because the popcorn can just pop right over me, right? And I can just keep going. Some of us were sitting in that seat. We're like, oh, I'm not even sure. But here's the reality. Some of us sit in that seat even individually. Like, I just fear prayer because I'm not sure I'm going to talk to God the right way or interact with him in the right manner. Then lastly is this. Prayer, prayer can become frustrating. Now, I told you there was deceptions and lies. Prayer can become frustrating. That's not a lie. It just can. But we often can just leave it there and just assume that prayer is always frustrating. It's always maybe silence. For some of you, prayer is frustrating because you're like, I can't hear God. What, what do you mean he answers prayers? I don't, even, I don't even know where to start with that. He hasn't answered my prayer, right? He hasn't answered the prayer of healing. He hasn't answered the prayer of family reconciliation. He hasn't answered the prayer of that relationship. He hasn't answered the prayer of my career, my job. What do you mean prayer works? For others of us, prayer is frustrating because let's just be honest it can feel lonely and irritating. Just like, I'm not sure, I'm, who am I praying to? What am I praying for? What's going on? For some of you, it's just frustrating because you have to do it. You're like, uh, Joel tells us to do it, right? The Bible says we should do it. You're like, I'm just frustrated by it, right? The reality is this. If this is where we leave it, then prayer becomes another spiritual practice that we have to do to get by so that we can go on with our day. But what if the cry of our heart and the cry of our gut and the cry of our minds, the cry of our life actually can be fulfilled by prayer? What if the spiritual practice of prayer points us to something more and greater and something worthwhile spending your days doing? What if? Because Jesus teaches us about prayer in three different ways. And we're going to see this throughout the series. Jesus tells us that prayer is relationship. Prayer is relationship. It is not just a checklist. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's not just we got to do the thing. It is encounter and conversation with the living God of the universe. And Jesus is going to interact with it that way. We're going to see it that way, especially today. Secondly, Jesus tells us prayer is a response. It's a response to the reality of the gospel. We're going to see this today. So it's a response to the reality of the gospel. We're going to see that at the cross and through Jesus' resurrection, open communication with the God of the universe was gifted to us. I think sometimes I see prayer as just a thing that God wants me to do so I can fulfill some duty. But all of a sudden, when you see it as a gift, you can delight in it, start to run into it in a powerful way. We're going to look at the response of our heart the next three weeks as we ask God to search us, break us, and send us. And then lastly is this. Jesus tells us, keep running into it. He tells us to be resilient in prayer, persistent in prayer. I think he's asking the question as we pray, what if prayer was less about a conclusion or answer and more about persistence and resilience in relationship? Right? What if it was less about a conclusion and an answer and more about persistence and resilience inside a relationship? And I'm not saying that conclusions and answers aren't in prayer or aren't good. But what if it was more? 
One of the books back there, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, is written by Tyler Stanton. He would say this about prayer, and then we'll jump into where we're going today. Prayer can't be mastered. So take that burden off your shoulders, right? Like, I'm not sure how to do it. Cool. No one else in this room does either. Perfectly. Some maybe know a little bit more because they've engaged with it. Some maybe a little less. You can't be mastered. Prayer always means submission, though. To pray is to willingly put ourselves in the unguarded, exposed position. There is no climb. There is no control. There is no mastery. There is only humility and hope. You ever thought about prayer that way? Prayer is actually running after our hearts. And in running after our hearts, inviting us to see God differently, interact with God differently, and to see our hearts transformed in the process. Because here's the reality. Sometimes I pray with control in mind. God, do this, do that, have this for me. Sometimes I do it so that I can feel spiritual, climb the mountain as high as I can. But what if prayer was more about our hearts being humbled and running into hope? What if prayer wasn't about you checking off the list and grabbing all the resources and doing all the things I said, but actually running into God and saying, I want you to have my heart? What if? What if we as a church saw prayer that way? What would God do with that? In our own life, yes, but in others' lives. What if prayer became the main source of life with God as I walked with him? And my invitation throughout this series is this. Would you enter this conversation with humility and hope? Would you enter this conversation with humility and hope? That you maybe have heard about prayer before. Maybe you've heard me talk about prayer before. Maybe you've read books before. Maybe you are actively praying. Would you enter into the next month with humility inside of prayer and hope inside of prayer and inside of your life? Because the reason we chose this series is, yes, there are some really neat things happening over the course of the next couple months that are happening now that we saw in the summer. But I believe without prayer, it just becomes about us doing something. But what if we blanketed this entire thing in prayer and allowed God to do his thing and offered it all up to him? How much more will he do with it? How much more powerful will that be? That what we're building, what we're doing ministry-wise, what's happening is not just about filling the calendar, but ultimately God's glory being displayed in our community and asking him to do that thing. So would you enter into this conversation with me in humility and hope as we walk along the journey? Because in Luke 11, we see Jesus continue in verse 2. Jesus continues in verse 2. And this is the starting point for his prayer with his disciples. He jumps right in with them. They're like, they're like Lord, teach us how to pray. And this is where he leads. Let's check it out. Verse 2. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Father, hallowed be your name. That's all we're going to look at today. The first thing I want you to write down is this. Prayer is an invitation to be with the Father. Prayer is an invitation to be with the Father. 
Here's the reality. That first statement would have been shocking, almost repulsive to the first century Jews, to the disciples. Jesus was speaking to the God of the universe. They would have had the title Yahweh in the form of addressing him as Father. They would have heard him address Yahweh as Father. And if his disciples were here, they'd be like, yes, that was shocking. Because a first century Jew had a very, very distinct view of who God is. They would have seen him as the holy creator, king God, that was the pillar of the fire in the desert, that they would have probably been a little bit intimidated by and would have approached with the utmost reverence. To call God Father would almost be shameful, would almost be in a mocking kind of way they would have thought. Like, how could you even approach him as such? So this kind of takes a step back, and, and as they interact, they're like, Jesus, why are we starting here? And that's exactly why Jesus' first statement is so powerful. Father, hallowed be your name. Because here's the reality. Father is a personal relationship with someone. I don't know what your story with your father or dad is, but the God of the universe interacting with us as father is very personal, loving, present, and wants to lead us. It beckons to a relationship with him. But what's interesting is the statement right after that, hallowed be your name. Hallowed meaning holy, set apart, meaning distinct, meaning you and I as human beings cannot be in the presence of a holy God because we're sinful. They would have seen God as such, and it beckons to the power and unreachable nature of our God. And here's what's powerful about Jesus' prayer. He is praying with both in mind, not just one or the other. Think about it like this. When I was young, I grew up in a pastor's house, okay? And my dad was simultaneously my pastor and my father, which is interesting, right? So Monday through Saturday, we'd be wrestling in the living room, knocking over lamps and stuff, throwing the football out back, having fun family vacations. He's father. But on Sunday morning, he was preaching and teaching, and I was one in the audience with everybody else. Simultaneously, he's my father still in that moment, right? He wasn't, it wasn't like he's like, now you're my congregant, right? But he also was my pastor in that moment. I still see him as my pastor. And I think that dynamic in such a small way is similar to what Jesus is praying. There is this power to this title of pastor and, and being called to that and leading people and ultimately seeing my dad as someone in my life to have influence in that way for me. But it's also just as powerful that he's my father and simultaneously I get to interact with him in that way. And Jesus is like, how powerful is it that you get to call the creator, God, the one who rules over the universe, who is holy and set apart, father, and still recognize the power of who he is. 
The same God who created you oversees your life and is king is the same God who wants to hold you, wrestle with you, laugh with you, and cry with you. Well, how can this be? Jesus is introducing something powerful to his disciples. He is introducing to his disciples the gospel inside of this one phrase. What he is sharing with his disciples is going to come to fruition at the cross and through the resurrection, and he is just telling them, hold on, because it'll all make sense when you see me go to the cross and then rise again. Because the all-powerful creator, king of the universe, who guides, directs, governs, and judges, uses his power and his holiness to get personal with us. And come in the form of a man in the mess. And he decided to use his set-apartness to save us, not condemn us. That's really powerful. That what we see in here is an ode to the gospel. The fact that we can call him father and yet hollow his name, his character. That we can worship and be in awe of who he is as creator, king, God, creator, who is set apart and distinct. Means that we can interact with the God of the universe in a different way than we ever have been able to before. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of what Jesus did. Now, here's the reality. I think just as offensive as it would have been for a first century Jew to hear Jesus say, Father, I think for a 21st century American, it's all too familiar. Here's what I mean. That the title, Father, for us to be able to say that came at a cost. That when we approach the throne and we approach God in prayer, we have to recognize that the deep love of the God of the universe allowing us to approach his throne as father came at a cost of his only son, Jesus. It's not something that should scare us away, but ultimately the invitation of open communication and open relationship becoming a child of God is not something that just is warranted to me and something that just because I walk this earth, I get. It came at a cost and a sacrifice through Jesus, living the life that you and I could not live, dying the death we deserved and rising again so that we could have life And inside of that, you and I, when we say yes to Jesus, we become a child of God. And what Jesus is introducing to his disciples is this open communication that now Yahweh, the God that you hollowed his name, he was set apart. He was the pillar of fire. He feels distant. You're not even saying his name verbally because you're so intimidated by it. You have reverence for it. You're interacting in that way. Now you can address his father because I'm here. This is why prayer is such a gift. This is why when we talk about prayer in this series, it is not a ho-hum, we got to do it, or it's not a burden. It is a gift that Jesus died for, rose again, for us to be able to have a relationship with God through Jesus, which opened the wave of open communication to God. Do you understand that? The break between humanity and divine has been broken at the cross and through his resurrection. And there's something beautiful about that. 
that I think all of us, whether saved or lost still, yearn for. And it's only found in Jesus. So first, it's an invitation to be with Jesus, the gift initiate or be with the Father, a gift initiated by Jesus. My invitation is this: if you've never said yes to Jesus, we would say it's as simple as accepting the free gift that He's offered to us. Accepting that you and I, all of us, are sinners in need of a Savior. And recognizing that I need to turn from trusting in myself or in other things and trust in Jesus as the only one. And then to start following him in his kingdom in everyday life. Is that going to be a perfect step-by-step experience? No. And yet I keep being invited to turn to him, keep being invited to see him, keep being invited to follow him in prayer is one of the main sources of that conversation, especially when you're struggling. So I'd invite you, if you've never said yes to Jesus, this conversation will open up in new ways if you initiate that conversation. And we'd love to talk to you about that. But here's the reality. If you're a follower of Jesus, eyes up here. Prayer cannot get old Because the gospel is written all over it. The blood of Jesus paid for it. His life rising again gave us the ability to have relationship with the all-powerful God who has become our father and loves us in that. Secondly, prayer is an invitation to see who I am. Prayer is an invitation to see who I am. Right? This will be a little bit shorter section, but basically when you and I say yes to Jesus, we become children of God. Prayer is one of the greatest ways to be reminded of who you and I are now in Jesus. The fact that we get to pray and with a familiarity of Father is such a blessing. And it reminds us of the love and the grace and the goodness of our Father that he would send his son to die for us. It's a reminder that I am now a child of God, an ambassador. I have purpose and meaning, and I love this. I think in light of that, the writer of Hebrews writes chapter 4, verse 16 in such this way. It says this, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's the reality. Because of what Jesus has done in the previous verses, it talks about Jesus being our high priest. He stepped in the gap. He was the mediator. And all of a sudden, through his death and resurrection, you and I, through Jesus, can have an intimate personal relationship with God. And no longer... Do we have to cover up? No longer do we approach scared. We approach with confidence because now we're approaching our father who's on the throne and we're his child. Does that mean just when things are going well, Joel? Nope. I think this verse is actually written in such a way for when crap's hitting the fan, if you know what I mean. Because here's the reality. 
a lot of us see prayer as just when I'm feeling good or when I'm feeling great or when I'm feeling it in the rhythm of my life. But you know when prayer is the most powerful? Is when I run into the throne room of the God of the universe who sent his son so that I could become his child. He is now father. So I run into the throne room of my father who is willingly there to receive me and lavish grace and mercy upon me when things are not going well and when I am sinning and when I am stuck. That is some of the most beautiful moments in prayer. Not when I'm doing well, but when I'm not. And the same God who saved me way back then, maybe for some of us, continually is saving me. And he wants me to turn and run into his throne room with confidence. Why? Because he loves me. And he didn't just send Jesus so we had some fun story to talk about, but literally the death of Jesus paid for us to have the confidence to run in and beckon to the relationship we have with him. He says he's going to lavish mercy and find, we're going to find grace when it doesn't make sense. Listen, prayer, it reminds me of who I am. It reminds me that I can run into the relationship with the God of the universe and call to him as my father in my time of need, both to see him personally and powerfully. Lastly, prayer is an invitation to experience life. Prayer is an invitation to experience life. I didn't really know the right words to, to phrase this, but I think it, it does justice. Prayer, what we'll find out in the next three weeks in particular, is more about communion than it is conclusion. Prayer is more about communion than it is conclusion. I believe as I've read books and studied scripture, prayer is a lot in biblical and scholars and, and a lot of authors would say prayer is not just a set time in the morning that I do it, but is an ongoing day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute interaction with the God of the universe. And, and there's a lot of steps and, and time that it takes to get to that point, trust me. But it is more about communion than conclusion. And in Luke 11, later on, we see this. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And so the one who knocks, the door will be opened. I used to read that as like, sweet, if I pray at the right time, the right rhythm, the right words, I'll get what I want. Maserati that sits out in front of my house will be mine, right? I used to think of it like that. But what if, just what if, Jesus isn't talking about a conclusion to the prayers we're asking, but rather he's beckoning to communion with him inside of that. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. I think what he's speaking to is our relationship with him. And his will being done in our life, not our will. His kingdom being built, not our kingdom. That as we continue to seek him, what he is going to do is he's going to turn the degrees of our heart towards him. And when we say we find it, it's not we found the answered prayer all the time. But rather we found communion with the God of the universe 
Rather, the door's been opened to relationships so that the end goal isn't my prayers answered, but that I'm in relationship with him in a whole new way. I shared it like this uh, a few months ago when we talked through the seed. I said, bother God. Bother your father in heaven. Keep knocking, keep running in. I use this illustration. When we were young, my dad and mom, would, they were upstairs, they had a bedroom upstairs, we were all downstairs, storm, nightmare, whatever may happen, right? Usually it was my sister, I never went upstairs to my parents, right? But when we would run up in the middle of the night, dad, 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 I can't sleep, dad, 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 the thunderstorm, dad, 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 scary dream, right? He'd get up, give us a hug, make sure we're okay, and then he'd pull the pillow and the blanket he had beside his bed and said, why don't you sleep here the rest of the night? That, in a sense, bothering him was such a joy. Because what did it do? It built into the relationship we had with our father in some of the most scariest moments as a five, six, seven-year-old. And I think the father of the universe, the God of your heart, is saying, I have a pillow and blanket in on of ourselves busy or think God is too busy. In the father of the universe, the most powerful being who always has been, always will be created, everything that you and I see, you look around at each other, he created you and I, and we all look different and beautiful because we are made in his image. And if it just stopped here, that's dumbfounding and amazing, but there's seven billion of us. And the reality is this, that God wants you to bother him. He wants you to bother him because this is what he sees. He sees bonding, not bothering. He sees abiding, not annoying. He sees intimacy, not irritating. Because here's what we're going to find out. Yes, prayers get answered. Yes, healing happens through prayers. Situations change through prayers. Circumstances changes through prayers, miracles happen through prayers, but, but, I think the central thing about prayer is not that my things get answered, but that my relationship with him flourishes. That the end goal of prayer is not prayer in of itself, it's relationship with him. This is what Mother Teresa would say. Prayer enlarges the heart until it is capable of containing God's gift of himself. Ask and seek, and your heart will grow big enough to receive him, keep him as your own. Here's reality. Ask, seek, knock. For the sake of falling more in love with the God of the universe, who wants you to bother him day and night at all hours, for the sake of the relationship that he wants to have with each and every one of us. This type of prayer that we're talking about and that Jesus starts with is a prayer of adoration. It's the fancy word for it. Literally love and affection. It begins here, it doesn't end here, which we'll see. It begins here. 
Because here's the reality inside of this prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Father, you're worthy to be praised. Father, you're worthy to be glorified. Father, your goodness is more than I could ask for. Father, I praise you and worship you. Inside of that, we begin to recognize the love God has for us, who we are in that, and how to love others out of that. This kind of prayer is a rebellion against the lies of the world and the lies that we often tell ourselves and the lies that Satan tells us. It is a primary defense mechanism for us to believe what actually is going on is of God and not of ourselves. Here's where I want to end, though. What do we do with this today? What do we do with this today? Two, two really quick things that I just want to talk to that I would love for you to put into play. So I share all that, and you're like, that's great, Joel. I'll grab a series guide. Maybe I'll check out the books if the cover looks really cool. Maybe I'll go to the prayer gathering. I, I don't know, right? Maybe you have young kids, and it's just not possible. Two things I want you to do with this, if you do nothing else. Just two things. I believe that prayer is more powerful than we give it credit. Two things. First is this. Pray as you can with who you can. Here's reality. I know what is going on. You're, you're, you're flaunting prayer facts in front of us. But I, I don't have the time. My calendar doesn't fit with it. I don't even know where to start. I'm not even sure where to go with it. I've heard this quote. I don't know who to attribute it to, unfortunately. But it says, pray as you can, not as you want. We all want to pray like the, the monks out in the desert that pray for like eight hours straight. I can't do that. Just to let you know, be encouraging. Pray as you can with who you can. If that's a minute a day, start there. <clears throat> if that's an hour a day, start there. If that's 30 seconds, when you pop out of bed, your kids are screaming, they're running around the house already, you're like, what is happening? You just start there in 30 seconds. Father, grab your spouse, grab your kids, grab a friend, pray with them. Just pray as you can, start where you can, with who you can. Nine o'clock prayer gathering is back there. If you're available, that's a great place to start in it. Listen, eyes up here, I don't wanna lose you. If some of you are like, I'm just mad and angry, upset, pray as you can. Our God is, is bigger, doesn't intimidate him if you come at him with the right, left, right. Pray as you can. Well, God, why? God, this. Pray as you can. If you're nervous and intimidated, pray as you can. God, I'm not sure how to do this. Ugh, it feels weird. It feels messy right? If you're jubilant, pray as you can. If you're depressed, pray as you can. With who you can. Barna also found out most people, 98% of people say they pray alone. Only 2% said that they pray with others vocally. With who you can so that it becomes a movement of prayer, not just an isolation of prayer. Lastly, as the worship team comes up, pray with a rhythm in your schedule. This dovetails a little bit. <clears throat> Pray with a rhythm in your schedule. This would be my encouragement. Find this week, write this down in your notes, on your forehead, 
your palm, on your shoe, wherever. Be still with the God of the universe for one minute each day. And you're like, what does that mean? It means literally what I'm saying. Just be still. Just, God, I want to be with you in prayer. Be still for a minute. I want to hear from you. I want to quiet my soul, my life. And I want to have a conversation with you. Just one minute just to be still. Because in that, I think we encounter God uniquely. This is what Psalm 4610 says. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations, exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still. And as you're still, you slowly start to walk the path of knowing who is God and who is not. You start to recognize and realize that in our life alone, we are not God. He is. One minute a day, front porch, couch, bedroom, cafe, don't matter, wherever it's at. Be still and know that he's God. Be still and experience God. Be still and converse with God. I believe that as a church, this should become of the utmost importance, prayer. Also in the book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, Tyler Stanton would say this. The church's underground atheism in our time is that we will busy ourselves with almost anything except prayer. Whew. Feels a little tense, doesn't it? You're like, what is he getting at? We can do a lot of really good things in and of ourselves. We can do a lot of really great things out of our own power. We can do a lot of really great things in events and in calendar and all of that stuff. But that is reliant upon just me and you. And we'll get so busy, we will forget who we are here for and who is actually leading this thing. It's God. So actually, just a couple weeks ago, I challenged my staff. It's mandatory. They don't have an option. But I challenged them. We are committing to every day that we are in the office that 30 minutes of each of those days is committed to prayer. Because as a leadership, we want to kneel first and go second. My invitation to you is this, one minute, every day this week, kneel first, go second. Do it with us. Now, I'm starting with where we can and we'll get to where we wanna go with it. Because I think God wants to do something if we're willing to humble ourselves and lean into the hope of who he is. Father, hmm. this is a gift. All of this. A gift that we get to talk to you gift, that we get to relate to you, that we get to be with you, that we get to be personal with you, that, Father, this service is not about spewing facts and singing songs. It is about you. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us so that we could make life 
less about us and more about you. And yet that comes in a humbling way. Father, we praise you. We praise you for your goodness and grace. praise you for your justice and mercy. We praise you that you celebrate us and you call us out at the same time as any loving father would. Thank you for giving us not just good gifts, but the greatest gift, which is Jesus. Thank you for calling us children. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. So, Father, as we sit here, would you make this next part not about us getting through the last song to get to lunch or get to whatever, but would you make it about you? Would your spirit breed confidence in us to enter into your throne room in this moment? And Father, I ask that even starting today, you would search our hearts. You break us for the 16,000, the lost people in our community, and that you would send us, Father. Send us this week. Move us into to places that we were not anticipating or asking for. Move us into the uncomfortable, the messy, for the sake of your glory and your grace being experienced, Father. You are good. So in the quietness of this next song, would you stir in our hearts? Praise you. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to talk about you and with you. We pray this in your name.